Now, ladies and gentlemen, if anybody had said to me a couple of weeks ago that the James plays about 15th century Scottish kings would be packing them in in the Olivier so that not every seat was sold, I'd have recommended a sort of lying down in the nearest darkened room and what, catching up with a box set of, I don't know, the, the uh, Antiques Roadshow or something equally as restful. But of course, I reckoned without the extraordinary contribution these two titans next to me have made to what is a thrilling and exciting piece of epic theatre. And presumably you know, but I'll just introduce Rona Munro and Laurie Stanson on my left here. Now, tell me, Rona, I mean, did you feel... I was very in interested in the fact that your, the plays start in 1420, end in 1488, and I look at Shakespeare and the three parts of Henry VI and Richard III are almost contemporaneous. I mean, yes. did you feel the bard was on your shoulder while you were writing these plays? Well, the, the truth about that was, in a sense, it was an inspiration because one of the reasons I wanted to write the plays, um, which I, I know sounds appallingly arrogant, but I had been to see the RSC's production of the history plays when they did the whole lot with one company of actors. And they were tremendous, as anyone who saw them will, will know. Um, and, but what struck me afterwards was not only how good they'd been and how, how accessible they'd been, because I think when actors actually understand what they're thinking when they speak Shakespeare, it's completely comprehensible, and they did. Um, but the, the main thing that struck me was that everything that's known about that period of English history is really informed by those plays so that most people know the stories, even if they've never seen the plays themselves, those stories have entered the popular culture and on a sort of timeline, a popular culture timeline of history, that bit's coloured in because people have Henry V in their head, they've got Richard III in their head and they sort of know what was going on. And we didn't have an equivalent in Scotland. So that's where the arrogant bit comes in. I thought, well, I can have a go. Uh, and it was that I just thought, I, it was a huge ambition. Um, so in that sense, the bard was sitting on my shoulder. In, a, in another sense, I didn't let that in my head at all while I was writing them because it would cripple you. And also because I wanted to put them in very contemporary Scottish language, which in a kind of way is what he did. Of course, his language was contemporary yeah. to his own time. Um, but I, I really needed not to be writing um, sub-Shakespeare. I needed to be writing Rural Monroe, 21st century Scotland. So, it, it, yeah, he, he did, and then he had to be shoved off, I think. Well, I thought <laughs> introducing Henry V into the first play yes. was a sort of, a, I don't know, a nod from one playwright to another. Well, in a I way. think it was also to mm -hmm. an audience. It was sort of to, and I think because I chose to imagine Henry in a very different way, um, I wanted to just clue people up that maybe were coming to see a more conventional history play. Um, that you're going to get it, but it's going to be with a, it's not going to be quite what you expect. Well, that's yeah. interesting about um, the Henry V scene, which went through many different versions, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. Um, and I just remember you suddenly going. There was a whole section in it yeah. that was very specifically a comment on Shakespeare's version yes. of Henry V and Catherine. Yeah. And it was kind of a comic reversal of actually what really happened. Yeah. And I just remember the moment where you suddenly went, actually, you've got to get rid of it because this has to stand alone yeah. rather than be in reference to a Shakespearean play, yeah. which I thought was a, just an interesting moment to go, actually, that that's too self-consciously yeah. in yeah. reference to Shakespeare. So it d didn't work for the 
for what you were doing. Mm. So, you, I mean, you have seven Jameses to choose from. The first five can sort of consecutively, one after the other. What made you choose, you know, Jameses one, two and three to focus on? Uh, well, I think it's a very interesting period of Scottish history, mm -hmm. of, of British history, actually. Um, not least because, oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, because, but, but it com because it's completely unknown. Um, it is completely unknown, and the as uh, the English history for the period is extremely well known. But in fact, the, the historical fact is that what was going on in Scotland was as least as influential, mm. certainly in European terms, as what was going on in England. But also was part of what formed the relationship between the two countries. I mean, the seeds of a lot of what we are still, as this response tells us, um, dealing with today, mm. were sown in that century. So I think from that point of view, not that I knew we were going to be doing them in the referendum year when I started, mm. um, it, it felt like the, the, the place to start. So how, when did the relationship between the two of you start? Because Rona, you've been writing them for some time. Laurie, you were other things, just been appointed artistic director of the National Theatre of Scotland. So when did the two of you get together? to work on these plays? Well, when I first went out to Scotland, after having been appointed, Rona was actually the first artist that I spoke to, and we'd not met before. And Rona was actually on a retreat, finishing the first draft of One, oh, Two and Three. One, Two and Three. Yeah. Two weeks in an isolated cabin in the Highlands. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to the isolated cabin in the Highlands, and <laughs> um, there were some other writers all working in, in, in their own cabins on projects. <laughs> and I was just meeting, meeting the artists. Yes, and so we had, a yeah, we had a mm. chat um, and I could, I, but basically Rona just wanted to get, get back to the mm. writing her script. I mean, you just want, you said, yeah, I can tell you about them, but really I could tell that you just wanted to get back and carry on writing, mm. really. There wasn't really anything to say apart from, I'm going to be delivering these scripts. But the amazing gift as an incoming artist director was having the first drafts of these plays on my desk when I first arrived um, and really hoping they were going to be good and that I'd like them because so much investment from Rona in, in them imaginatively in terms of time and financial from the company, you know, and, and um, their big doorstop of, a, of three plays to, to plough through. But I remember the moment of reading the first scene with James and Henry V and being excited. And by the end of the first act of James I and his, for those of you who've seen it, the extraordinary speech at the end of Act One, I just kind of then knew that this was a project that NTS had to do and had to do in 2014. And by the time I'd finished through the trilogy, um, I didn't know how we were going to do it because the scale of an ambition of it is, is unprecedented in terms of National Theatre of Scotland. Um, that we had to do all three plays with one company of actors in 2014. It seemed essential. Um, and then I gave the company the headache of working out how we actually made that possible. Mm. So that's, that's where we began. And then we did three different workshops um, over the year leading up to going into rehearsal on one, two, three, which is the, when we kind of started developing a creative relationship, really. I mean, how many scenes are there in the three, I mean, oh the three plays added together? It's a really good question. I've no idea. You've no idea? No how many idea. characters? Uh, oh, no idea. No <laughs> 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 oh dear, it's a bit no. complicated with the fact that I never put scene headings as well. <laughs> no. So. Mm. no. I couldn't tell plays. you. Um, and actually, some, something like James mm. 2, uh, there's a question of how you, where you count scene breaks, actually. Mm. Because yeah. if you think about the 
um, the, the fluid nature of the nightmare section at the beginning, the mm. first half an hour, and whether you count them as separate scenes or one big scene, I don't know. So, um, but it's uh, big. I mean, one of the most complicated processes, and we had mm. to throw things back to Rona, was working out how many actors we needed mm. in terms of through casting. So um, one of the reviews talked about the cast list looking like an Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> which is fair enough, really, because it does. But the amount mm. of the casting mm. grid is what it got known as. And I spent many hours poring over this casting grid of working out by gender and age the, the, the least number of actors we could actually yeah. stage it with. Mm. Um, and actually, I got it to 22. And then we financially, it was not going to be possible. So it was 20 was the maximum we could do it with. So um, actually, then Rona had to think about ages and, and shift around some characters and take a few people out. To, for us to make the grid work, actually. So how so is the, how, uh, what is the size of the company now? 20. 20, yeah. which is, is absolutely extraordinary, mm. really. I mean, I know they're all young and fit and uh, absolutely uh, at the peak of their... Uh, they're fitter now after the yeah. hour-long <laughs> training, <laughs> training they do every day. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's some very muscular chaps in the, in the company. Yeah, there's a lot of competitive oh, working out. Lots, yeah. of compet <laughs> lots of competitive training. It almost felt like I had to allow mm -hmm. them to get their tops off mm -hmm. at certain points in the productions because they've been working so hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, to show off their, know, their buff no. condition. I, I tried to stop that. <laughs> so, as you say, Rona, I mean, nobody knows a great deal about the 15th century uh, in Scotland. So, you kind of had to please yourself. What made you choose certain episodes above others? Did you sit down with the sort of chroniclers and the, the historians and what has been written about that period and kind of cherry pick? nice ideas or dramatic situations or how, how did it happen well i kind of um mm. the the first the, the, the ultimately the, the choice was always what's the best story mm -hmm. what is because if you're asking people to shell out you know up to 50 quid for a seat um it might be more here actually might it? um mm. then you 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 deserve they deserve a good story a good world so that was if it involved changing events slightly mm. or picking one that was more historically dubious than another it was like give people a good strong show that was the criteria number one within that there are there are like um there's one academic academically accessible you know as opposed to very scholarly book on james first one on james second one on james third so i had those to read there's also a very small amount of um what you call it primary source mm -hmm. so there's a, a there's this wonderful guy called um abbott bauer who wrote a thing called the Scottish Chronicon, which was a 10 volume epic where he took the history of Scotland from what he thought was the dawn of time mm. right up to his own present day. Now, t of the nine volumes of that are fantasy. And then the 10th volume, he's actually chronicling events that he witnessed and lived through. And he would have shaken James I's hand he would have probably picked up James II mm. as a small boy, you know. And so my take on that was that if he says it, I'm going to give it the, the I'm going to say that's a true story if I mm. want to use it. And not, because unlike an academic, I don't then have to worry about, but would his bias as this, you know, this religious house mean that he would actually mm. falsify this? Well, it was just mm. like, no, he said that's what happened. He said James I looked like that. He'd shaken the guy's hand. That's the true fact. And some of those stories cannot be verified. So therefore, the scholarly books tend to leave them out. But I thought, well, I can have those. Yeah. And I also would say that mm. there was a little acid test I did when we were um, 
when I was doing the research and people were asking me about it. And it's, to me, it was to demonstrate the fact that the one thing that will survive anecdotally through centuries of history or even decades, you know, shorter periods, will be a good story. So that therefore, just because someone writes a story 100 years later, doesn't mean it's not true because anecdotes are what last. The, the one I always, rather than dates, rather than dates or facts or details of economics or land charters. And what I always used to say to people was, what is the exact date that Princess Diana died? And most people can't tell you. But if you ask them to tell you that story, they can give you every detail. Mm. So that, that was my, so what I basically did was look at the books, look at the primary sources, and where there was a good story, I had it. <laughs> and, um, and I would also quite robustly say that, uh, make a strong case for that possibly being the truest thing, because I think those are the things that last. I mean, are you writing about kingship? Are you writing about uh, mature, the maturing of a, a political entity called Scotland? Are you talking about queenship as well? I thought that was very striking watching the third play last night was how much it is about how to be a queen as it is how to be a king. I mean, do you, is that one way you're, you're thinking of it? Not giving advice exactly, but kind of noting the, the, the cultivation of uh, power, how to, how to rule wisely and prudently. I don't no, actually, it's kind of not for me to say because I don't think I write with that clear an agenda. Mm -hmm. I think that ah, there's absolutely no way to say these things without sounding utterly self-indulgent. Well, go on. Um, but, ah, mm -hmm. I, I suppose what I'm trying... Well, I think the thing about writing history plays is you're writing up about people who are dead and we're all going to die. And it's what lasts. And it's what lasts... It's how human they were and what that teaches us. So I think that's what I wanted the place to do. And I think Scottish history is a really good place to, to, to land those stories because the community in Scotland was so small. Mm. So that all you're, you're, you're talking about epic things, about events that have happened to a whole nation, but that nation was really small. So all the individuals within it were within spitting distance of each other. So the king's doing something, but even the pot boy in his kitchen's knew him even the you know peasant in the field would have known him it's a small enough world that you can have it as a microcosm of a much larger so i suppose yeah it's a place for looking at the human impact of powerful events <coughs> and the passage of time but what i was hoping to do was to make people think yeah, these were people just like us because that is that is the most fundamental thing we can take from history. We love to think it's distant and remote and mm. happening to weird people that did stupid things because they didn't have the benefit of hindsight and are a bit thick because they don't know how a mobile phone works. But they weren't. They were literally just like us. So I think that was my biggest ambition was to make them make them tell that story. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to come in here? Yeah. Well, I've, I think something uh, no, I think something else happens with well, as soon as you write a play about a king or a queen and and. Uh, I think theatre is arguably the best art form for exploring the position of an individual in a wider social political sphere. And in the person of a king, you've got someone who has an individual psychology, indi individual decision-making process, but also represents an entire nation or system. So they, they're uniquely bringing those two things together in, into one person. And I think what Rona does brilliantly in it is use tell personal domestic intimate stories about relationships that then have a wider resonance about uh, politics and ask you questions about how a nation should be governed about leadership and 
all, all really good history plays do that, I think. So it, there's, never, um, there's never a simple answer because people are messy and contradictory and, um, and these people definitely are, and, uh, which is one of the beauties of the plays. And as a director, it's fantastic because that's what you want in a script, working with actors, is you want to find the bits that are um, challenging and difficult and when someone says something, it means something else. And, um, uh, and that, that's the bit that gets exciting for actors and directors. Well, and I do think, yes, the that. domestic does win over the kind of grand. There's very little grandeur in the production. There's very, you thought with some of those themes that there would be kind of yeah. mighty oratory. And oh, there is, of course, a good deal of mighty oratory. But it's very seen, a kind of, you know, bird's eye view. People in their own homes, in their bedrooms, in the kitchen, and on picnics and gardens mm. and things. It's not... It's a private rather than a public mm. will to that extent. Would you agree? I, 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 well, um, I, I would to a large extent. I, I, think the, I think probably also what you're noticing is that we haven't really dealt, dealt with those big public scenes with the level of formality that we're often used to in British theatre. So, and it was very deliberate mm. on both our parts, is actually the staging of historical drama and period drama has accrued so many conventions that actually have no bearing on necessarily on the reality of what those moments were about, but are things that have come from a Victorian theatre tradition mm. through certain eras of RSC work, through the BBC period drama, mm. and actually it stops you from seeing those people as real living human beings. So we did make a decision to strip back some of that ceremonial formality, which is a, which is a theatrical construct anyway, mm -hmm. in its own way, and go, we're dealing with these as contemporary plays and inviting the actors to do that too, and not bring a kind of formal, poetic delivery, mm -hmm. but to talk to each other like real human beings. So that was a real, a, a very much a, a definite... Um, choice and a mission i think for in in your writing i think actually we were responding to the Absolutely, muscularity yeah. of the contemporary mm. language really on that front well, can i suggest that it's interesting that most of the the chaps in the company are i imagine of an age in their 20s something like that um and it seems to me that of course in scotland at that time the people the nobles and the lords would be probably in their early 20s anyway and they settle most of their disputes by wrestling matches, as far as I could tell. <laughs> but it's a, very, it's a very different atmosphere when all the women are together. And I think that isn't the play as much about the women in the James plays as it is about the Jameses, too. Not uh, just the Queen, but Isabella and Lady Annabella. And in those scenes, there's a sort of, there's a calmness, a maturity, and some of your best lines as well. I mean, is there this kind of... Well, actually, I'd take issue with that because I think Isabella mm. is a far more formidable and warlike and aggressive character than any man mm -hmm. in the play. I think it, it, women are invisible in history, not because they weren't there, but because they are less likely to have had the power and influence to have be a matter of written record. But actually, more than that, because it's only very, very recently that you have a generation of academics that's interested in making them visible, mm -hmm. that's actually going out there and looking for the evidence of their presence, which is there. Um, so I think the idea that, that almost the, the, the it's a surprise that you get, which I know is not what you're saying, but, there, but that there's a surprise that women are within 
major, you know, an influence in major historical events or a, or, a, or a very potent part of royal courts is probably it's our perspective that's skewed rather than the truth. It's just no one's looked for it. It did mean that I mm. had to do a greater leap of the imagination. So, like, for instance, um, with the character of Queen Joan, for, for those of you that have seen James I, she starts off with this kind of great list of her skills. And they, that was the one thing I thought, well, I do know that. I did a little bit of reading, you know, you do a bit of reading and study about what would have been the job of a, of a woman in a medieval castle. And of course, the popular image is that she's sitting in a, a tapestry mm -hmm. somewhere framed in a window with her sewing. And in actual fact, she would have been running this huge mm -hmm. household responsible for all these things and possibly an influence in foreign affairs like Margaret of Denmark and all these. So it was making those things visible, giving the women a presence. Um, it, it, but as to the to the whether they bring a calming or more mm. mature presence, I don't know that they necessarily always mm. do. I think I mean Joan it turns into a bit of a monster. No, no spoilers if you haven't seen James Two. Mm. Isabella is already a monster. Yes. Um, <laughs> Margaret, of course, is fantastic. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think. Again, I was just trying to write them as characters and give them a reality mm. that would be recognisable to a I modern audience. Although I think maybe that is a reflection a bit on the tone of certain parts of James III, mm. because actually, if you put the female household of Queen Margaret against the behaviour of James III, mm. James III is clearly a mm. petulant, immature, mm. narcissistic, arrogant, self-centred man in response to um, a much a more healthy um, and uh, I suppose you could say that they mature together, the three women in, in James mm -hmm. III. They do grow together and, and actually it's the combination of the 15-year-old Femi, the 50-something-year-old Annabella mm. and the 40-something-year-old Margaret growing through a difficult situation together that is part of the huge pleasure of James III. So I guess that is a reflection mm. on that play in particular, maybe. Mm. Well, tell us about the, the decisions you made about the design, mm. the set. I note, I mean, am I right in thinking that it gets gradually from the first play to the third play, colour starts to... More colour is evident. Yeah. But in the first play, it's all very dark, subfusk, dark greys, it seems to me, of mm. uh, sort of uh, colours that don't draw attention to themselves. But gradually, whether it's... Is it the sort of civilising mm. process that's going on? We see flowers, we see, uh, you know, proper frocks, proper medieval frocks, and all sorts of bright colours. Yeah. Is this, uh, tell yeah, us about the um, whole visual So John Borsa, the designer, and I mm. wanted to respond to the fact that Rona had written three plays with really different tones, but we were doing all three in one day quite a lot, and we couldn't keep changing the set. We couldn't have three different sets. So mm. we needed to create an environment in which all three plays could happily sit, but also we could change subtly so that actually audiences that are sitting there for 11 hours, I mean, it's seven and a half hours of drama, but you know, it's 11 hour day, mm. that you didn't feel like um, you, were, you came in, you went, oh, here we go again. Mm. But there was something, you knew that you were in a subtly different world, but the world connected up. So um, the tone of each play is really, really different. Those of you that have seen them will know that. And we, our, our kind of thumbnail uh, reference points for this were, well, the first is kind of Rona's Game of Thrones. The second is Rona's Pan's Labyrinth. And the third is Rona's All About Eve. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that for me was brilliantly helpful. Yes. And, and there's something about the mm. third play that mm. has 
it's the characters are more interested in what they're wearing, what they're drinking, what they're playing. The the kind of details of the frippery is all part and parcel of the world. And hopefully, although the world seems more colourful, more refined, that hides the fact that actually some of what's going on is far less refined. So, but that but you're right that we've we wanted to chart that journey. Mm. Um, and but it was more about capturing a different feel mm. and tone to each of the plays. And the, and the first one has this great muscularity to its plotting and feels like the kind of structure mm. that you might expect them a history play. And, and mm. that's why it's, I think, a really satisfying emotional experience one. Whereas two has a crazy, really unorthodox structure and this nightmare sequence, which which you kind of has an emotional logic rather than, a, rather than a plot logic. And the third is this brisk, bright relationship comedy um, until it becomes the mm. political world kind of expands in spite of what the characters want it to do. It kind of takes them over. So it was a real pleasure to go, right, let's find a visual language. And, a, and obviously costuming becomes so important mm. when you're not changing a lot of the set. Um, and John is, uh, has done such a fantastic job of being able to do that, I think. I mean, in a way, I suppose your mo uh, plays are moving from the Middle Ages into the early stages of the Renaissance, and That's this, right, yeah. the wine drinking becomes, you know, everyone becomes as a wine connoisseur. Yeah. Uh, everyone is sort of learning you know, refinements and civilizations and things. Mm. Now, at what time did you decide to stage these plays at the Edinburgh Festival in 2014? <laughs> I mean, did you not? feel under any pressure doing this? Or no. <laughs> no. Sleepless nights throughout July my, and August? My, the, and the first mm. thing that I've directed for the National Theatre of yes. Scotland, mm. a trilogy of three plays at mm. the Edinburgh International, no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, actually, I, I, you can't take those external pressures on. The pressure you put on yourself when you have three scripts like this is the pressure to do them justice. And that's pressure enough. And if you're just thinking about that, then the chances are you might make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. But it was a really difficult process to work out how to get them on. Um, luckily, I sent them straight away to the Edinburgh International Festival because it was a no-brainer mm. that the only context in which we could present them in Scotland in 2014 as a trilogy of this scale was at the International Festival. I, I, in my teenage years, I used to go up to the festival and be in shows. Terrible shows uh, and some better shows, um, but I got—I was always really thrilled by things I saw at the International Festival, and particularly Peter Stein's Oresteia, that trilogy, um, um, a, a kind of uh, a trilogy of Greek, other, another trilogy of three more disparate Greek plays, the Seven Streams of the River Ota by mm. Robert Lepage, and some of my best experiences were those marathon sessions at the International Festival. And I thought, well, if they can help, if anyone can get it on, EIF can. And the outgoing um, festival director had, had a, um, I was about to say, had a relationship with Rona. We sounded a bit, I <laughs> don't quite mean that. But had a professional relationship mm -hmm. with Rona before, mm -hmm. uh, in that he'd um, commissioned a play for the EIF. And so he was, uh, mm -hmm. as soon as he read the plays, he wanted them to be staged there. Mm -hmm. We still need another partner because of the scale financially. We, right. we couldn't afford to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And Nick Heiner immediately, mm -hmm. when as soon as he read them, went, yeah, we want to do these with you. So after we had those three partners, it was then a negotiation of how we made that work, which it was quite a, quite a thing to manage. So what inspired you to approach this national theatre? I mean, 
Did you say it's the proper National Theatre here? Am I speaking to Nick Heitner? Well, I mean, who, who well, well one, of, one of the things that we had to work out is what we called each other um, mm-hmm. because we couldn't say the National Theatre of Scotland and the National Theatre. Mm-hmm. That doesn't quite work no, for quite. us up in Scotland. <laughs> so uh, we decided, we decided, um, no, together we kind of went, well, we will refer to the National Theatre of Great Britain. Mm-hmm. So it was quite an interesting moment for all of us to go, right. Um, we ha- even have to think about the terms on which we, we collaborate on this. So the National Theatre of Scotland and the National Theatre of Great Britain had never worked before, together before, um, but I'd worked here. So um, I had a relationship with Nick and... Um, uh, a professional one, I hope. A professional one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Al, for um, before, you know, cutting before off, the off the pass. <laughs> That's how rumours start. Um, but, yeah. and, and actually, he'd asked me if I'd, work, mm. if I'd do something on the Olivier before, and I, and I couldn't because I was working mm. in Northampton. So I kind of thought, I think these might be up next street. And it made sense in a year when the country mm. was looking at itself. And I think Scotland started looking at what identity and borders and nationality meant. It, they started that process two years ago. It's really interesting that I think the rest of the UK only started catching up with that conversation really recently when it looked like the referendum might be a yes. Suddenly everyone down south was interested in these questions. But it seemed that um, we should be doing it uh, in, in England as well as Scotland mm. in 2014. Um, I think for some people have wondered whether there's a political statement in actually working with the National Theatre, but actually there was just a practical reason. And there was also just that bottom line of you just want as many people as possible to see mm. plays like this. That, that is the bottom line. If you want to make them as accessible to as many people. So, Rona, you didn't feel under any pressure that people were expecting you to make a grand statement that uh, you would come down from your retreat, from the cabin, and you would tell us what it all meant and what we should be thinking and anything like that. You, you didn't feel that you were being given a kind of a spokesperson for the nation role? Fortunately, no. <laughs> um, no. Uh, and, and again, it was like shoving the ghost of Shakespeare off your mm-hmm. shoulder. You ju- you, you, I mean, how could you? How could you? Um, so no, I didn't. I mean, I think, as Laurie w- was saying, you know, the, the, the pressure was always on the process of you get to a point where you have a sense of what these plays want to be and what the characters within them want to be, and then it's about getting that right so that it's a satisfying experience for an audience, and that is always the, the biggest pressure. The other stuff, you just keep shoving it out of the room. because uh, and, and the other thing is, I, I know if they are anyway half decent plays they ought to work in 10 years time whatever the political climate is i don't know if they will or not but if they are halfway decent mm-hmm. they ought to so that's the aim is not to write plays that are commenting on a particular moment mm-hmm. of our history time, yeah. but that place that can play you know yeah and we, we yeah. had a conversation about whether um there should be any tweaks to the script uh, after the result and mm-hmm. and whether there were parts of the play that would feel out of date immediately after the vote, after we knew the result. And um, Rona texted me more about six in the morning, I think, yeah. on the referendum morning. And I think it was just um, no rewrites, nothing's changed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was absolutely the right, the right call, actually, yeah. because what we've experienced is that the plays... Bits feel different. Bits yeah, do feel bit, very different. The audience resp- have responded in a really different way to different parts of the play, both yeah. in Scotland and in England, and post and pre-referendum. But it's never been anything but a rich experience. Mm-hmm. So there the end of James the Third and the end of Act One of James the First in particular that feel the most 
pertinent to our political situation. Just take on a different tone and feel. And the audience teaches that. Mm. We don't have to do that. It's the audience who bring that to it, actually. We should disappear soon, but ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking, first of all, Ronnie Monroe and Laurie Santum. Yeah.